Hey there, everyone. So do you ever get tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Do you ever get the urge to cut through the world of everyday surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths? Well, then maybe, just maybe, the wisdom of podcast is for you. Because in this podcast, we explore great works of philosophy and literature and art and try to pull out of them what's most invigorating and interesting and inspiring. Whether they come from the works of Plato, or Dostoevsky, or Picasso, here we explore ideas that move mountains and rock the soul. So come join us, won't you? Come worship at the altar of ideas and come celebrate the dancing of thought. And don't be afraid of the leaping sparks, as you can be certain of one thing, they will kindle the light inside of you. Welcome to the Wisdom of. Coming up today, Pascal's Pensée. Uh, like every bold idiot out there in the world, I had my very own gambling theory. But saying that it's my own, or even a theory for that matter, might be straining those words to their absolute breaking points. But it was definitely gambling. I can say that for sure. So get this. I would play roulette. And for a bit, I would just watch lurking between all the tables like a, an utter low roller. I'd wait, say, I don't know, three or four to see like three or four reds in a row. And then I would leap into action, throw down a $5 chip on black under the ironclad logic that no way the universe could continue to allow so many reds in a row. But if the universe was doing its job poorly and another red did come up, no problem. This time I dropped 10 on the next roll. Again, on red. Sorry, black? Which one was I betting on? This might have been the problem with my system. But whatever was coming up before, I just bet the opposite. And if the universe didn't cooperate again, like, okay, now I dropped 20. One night in particular, like, the universe was really jerky. And there were like 10 reds in a row. And I had $80 on one roll to win. Let me just quickly check my math to win $5. Now, I was pulled aside after that and informed by a source in the know that as a point of fact, neither the wheel nor the ball know what came before. And their collective ignorance meant that previous rolls had absolutely no effect on future rolls. At the opposite of the spectrum, we could talk about a different kind of bet, a wager, Pascal's wager, that being, you know, surprisingly more well thought out than my little theory, still might have a flaw or two. Pascal, he applied logic to the whole God, yay or nay debate. Like, what do you get by being an atheist? If you're right, you get utter nothingness. And if you're wrong, oh, just an eternity of the worst thing you can imagine. Like, 
for listeners of this podcast, it would be never ending stream of me talking rather than getting to the actual good parts. But if you go the other way and join the God Squad, if you're wrong, well, it's just the same old nothingness we had before. But if you're right, it's me free pods for eternity, a, a veritable heaven. Part of me does wonder if Blaze's little contrivance would get past a god that may be a little more on the ball than my uh, indifferent silver roulette friend over there. But what do I know? So tell us more about Mr. Blaze Pascal, or as my Canadian friends would say, Blaze Pascal. Wait, Blaze Pascal? Don't lie. That's no Canadian friend of yours. That's what you used to call him before today. And um, I like your little Pascal's wager intro, but yeah, you should never go to a casino again. Okay, so first, and as usual, a brief summary. So, Pensée, or Thoughts in English, was written by the 17th century French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal. The work is a collection of fragments he wrote in defense of the Christian religion. It's unfinished, as Pascal died before he could complete it. The Pensée is a powerful work, full of insights about the meaning of life and about religious faith. If you really, really take a look at big symbolism, like I'm talking about the corporate aspect of this world, like the symbolism industrial complex, if you were, whoever is working in the heart department is really earning their paycheck. The heart, it has, it has love, it has desire, it's got Valentine's Day and broken hearts, heart-shaped candies and boxes. Even that stupid hand gesture that soccer-slash-football players make when they really pretend they love the fans. But how about the other organs? Like, I don't know, just like maybe the kidneys. Uh, it could be some sort of symbol of purity. I don't know, we're still, we're still workshopping that one. But we are a bit further along on the liver. Like if the heart has love locked down, if modern line online discourse is, is anything to go by, hate and anger, they seem a bit more popular than love. And how about the liver? The liver with its bile duct, it really seems poised to step up and be our big hate symbol, a big anger symbol. We could have Liver Day on February 13th, uh, a little preemptive strike where you let everyone know how much you hate them. Or when you listen to some vitriolic speech by some awful politician or something, we can all be like, watch out for that dude. He's got a massive liver. I do wonder if the world's ready for a uh, big liver. I'm putting a you know, truth be told, I'm putting a decent chunk of, of my own cash into trying to make this happen. And honestly, I'm a bit disappointed. I can't even get you on board with the idea. Here you are with a chance to do something bold, be the first to, to get on board the liver train. And no, you just want to you just want to give the people what they want, something about the heart and reasons or no reasons and heart or something. I don't know. Just tell me about it. Big Liver Day? Yeah, no, I'm surprised you don't think I believe in you. It's a great idea. It's like uh, Baudelaire meets Hallmark. And like so many of your other great ideas, personally I'm really surprised it hasn't taken off. 
But anyway, so let's stick with what did take off, the heart. And let's talk about one of Pascal's most famous quotes. You know, this one. The heart has its reasons which reason knows nothing of. Okay, so what does he mean by this? Well, okay, so I think it's easy to misunderstand him here, as many of his opponents have, actually. I mean, when you talk about the heart, there are certain connotations, right? Actually, connotations that often come to us from the romantic writers of the 19th century. That's to say, talk of heart suggests things like sentimentality, and emotionalism, and even irrationalism. But I don't think Pascal has anything like this in mind. I don't think he's so singular like that. Okay, so maybe the best way to see it is like this. On the one hand, there's discursive and speculative and mathematical reasoning. And Pascal doesn't deny that this sort of reasoning can be extremely powerful and revealing. In fact, I think he would say that even God can come to be known this way. But, and here's the important point, it's just not the kind of knowing that has true religious significance or impact. So, what does that mean? Well, simple discursive and philosophical reasoning is too limited in the sense that it can never by itself fully apprehend God. Fully apprehend God existentially, that is. In other words, the arguments of reason can never on their own fully do justice to the profundity of religious experience. No, in order to fully know God in this more encompassing, existential way, we must use our mind in a more intuitive and holistic way, one that harnesses our affections and our will so that our entire personality is involved in the process, not just our discursive intellect. That's what he means by heart. Heart is an effortful mode of knowing that's not just purely intellectual, but one that's characterized by interiority, by the experiential, and by the movement of one's entire being in the direction of the divine. Actually, you know what? Now that I think about it, Pascal here reminds me a bit of the, the Danish Christian existentialist Kierkegaard. Now, I would say that Kierkegaard was more um, anti-rationalist than Pascal. But nevertheless, in spirit, they do seem to have much in common. Now, one Kierkegaard quote always stood out to me. It goes like this. It goes, To stand on one's leg and prove God's existence is a very different thing from going down on one's knees and thanking him. In other words, you might be able to use all sorts of uh, fancy logic to prove that God exists. But that doesn't mean that you've truly come to know God. And that's because for that to happen, you actually need to open up and commit your whole being to Him. You see, for Kierkegaard, it's possible to be the most learned theologian in the world and yet be completely spiritually empty inside. And on the other hand, it's possible to be the most ignorant farmer in the world and yet truly know God. Anyway, my point was just that Pascal and Kierkegaard are two Christian thinkers whose thoughts show many interesting affinities. And basically, it's that both feel deeply that human existence and matters of faith cannot be exhausted by objective or discursive knowledge. 
In other words, what they both counsel, in their own way, is not just objective truth, but the riches of experienced truth, or truth for individuals as existing persons. In this sense, they might both agree with the, uh, the New Testament Matthew, who tells us, of course, that your heart will always be where your riches are. Okay, now I want to mention one more thing here. So I think there's another way of getting at what Pascal is suggesting when he talks about the heart like this. And you know, maybe one way of explaining this is by taking a look at the French philosopher René Descartes. Because actually, Pascal not only knew Descartes personally, but disagreed with him in some ways. Okay, so we all know the famous Descartes quote, right? You know, I think, therefore I am. So what's the implication of this quote? Well, among other things, it's that we're constituted by our thought alone. It's that thought is the dignifying element in human nature. Now, Pascal doesn't entirely agree with this. No, for Pascal, we're not just essentially thinking beings and completely transparent to ourselves. Rather, we're more than we know, and we have an all-too-human nature. So again, I think that when he talks about the importance of the heart, what he's doing in a way is cautioning us against isolating human reason or intellect from the rest of our humanity, and then relying on it exclusively to give us the so-called complete truth. Okay, well, I think that's it. Wait, no, no, you know what? Let me just quickly say one last thing that just came to my mind now. It just came to me that there might be another more modern interpretation of Pascal's quote, and a pretty obvious one when you think about it. It's just this. It's that the explanations that people give for what they do is often at odds with the motives by which they're actually controlled. In other words, the reasons we give for our behavior are usually not the reasons which produce it. Now, we've heard this before, right? You know, from some guy called Sigmund Freud, the guy who talked about the conscious versus the unconscious, and who warned us all, even if we didn't want to hear it, that we are not the masters in our own house. We, we've been, we've been friends an awfully long time. So long, in fact, that there's a, there's a whole long catalog of things that we've been through together, and there's so many of them that just get swept aside. But every once in a while, one of those memories will just pop out of the recesses. Like, do you remember when I, I and I really wish I'd remember this last week for the episode on the Iliad, but whatever. But do you remember when we were in high school and our crazy science teacher, you know, the one that was a physically threatening former football player, albeit a punter, but that's a different story. But he accidentally spilled his coffee on a Bunsen burner and he ripped a hole in the time-space continuum. Well, we were just sitting there, but then all of a sudden we were transported back to the actual Trojan War, mid-siege. So after getting over the shock, we figured we might as well try and try and catch a glimpse of Helen herself, you know, face that launched a thousand ships and all. My plan was for you to create a distraction of one of the guards, and I would sneak past, grab a look, and then we'd figure the rest out later. But do you remember what you said? 
You pulled me aside, you stared deep into my eyes, and you upbraided me for for needing distractions, and you said that I should be able to face head-on life's existential issues. Jiminy Christmas, I wanted just to slap the hell out of you back then. But it turns out that those kind of thoughts and those kind of words, well, they might actually benefit us today recording this kind of podcast. So tell us what Blaze would say of the same kind of thing. Jiminy Christmas? How old are you? Anyway, yeah, so Pascal had a lot to say about the topic of distraction and diversion. And he wasn't a big fan of it, to say the least. Now, you might think, so we're obsessed with entertainment and stimulation. So what? If there's anything wrong with that at all, it's just that it's uh, frivolous and silly. But that's about it. So, who cares? Well, no. For Pascal, distraction is much more than just empty and frivolous. Our need for distraction, our constant agitation, is actually revelatory of an underlying existential and spiritual malady. In other words, we distract ourselves in order to try to overcome our anxieties and the harsh realities of life. You see, without distractions, we'd be forced to confront ourselves, which means among other things, coming face-to-face not just with our failures, but ultimately with our incorrigible mortality. Now, of course, this isn't something that most of us want to do. So, what do we do? Well, we fall back into the numbing background noise and find consolation in distraction. You know, we um, pathologically and restlessly check our phones for the, the latest sports scores or we serial binge on Netflix, and so on. So, Pascal would say that there's not only something shallow about living the the distracted life, as it prevents us from thinking deeply and pursuing any higher, more meaningful activities, but there's also something dishonest and cowardly about it too. There's something dishonest or self-deceptive about it in the sense that we we make believe like we're going to live forever and so have nothing to think seriously or deeply about. As Pascal himself says, in the end, we run heedlessly into the abyss after putting something in front of us to stop us seeing it. In other words, distraction, though it's consoling in the short term, it ultimately becomes the worst of our miseries because it prevents us from reflecting on and understanding our true condition, and it just leads us imperceptibly to our death. Or to uh, put it another way, living in that continuous stupefaction that is distraction, we stay oblivious to our death and so choke off the possibility of living a truly conscious and genuine life. We run like like a herd of buffalo caught up in the hysteria of action and of group frenzy only to realize too late that we've stepped over the cliff. Okay, so actually, in all of this, I I left out a hugely important and famous quote of Pascal's, and it's uh, pretty suggestive. It's this, he says, I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. What a great quote, right? But what does he mean by this exactly? Well, obviously he links unhappiness to, to restlessness and to movement, and to a lack of real focus or attention. 
He seems to be saying that if we could just learn to take the, the time to linger more and to stay focused, we'd be much better off. And actually, you know what? There is some modern empirical evidence that Pascal is right about this. That's to say, there are studies which show that when people are engaged in some activity, they're much happier when they're actually focused on it than they are if they're doing that activity but thinking about something else. In other words, a wandering, restless mind decreases happiness, and one that's patient and present and focused increases it. Now, this is something that the Buddhists have long known, of course, and actually the ancient Stoics too, who never tired of counseling us to be mindful of the present moment and stop living in a past that's now gone and a future that's not here yet. Anyway, think about how much in our postmodern world we've lost that capacity to stay quietly in our own room without looking for stimulation and diversion. We don't linger on things much do we? We rush from one piece of information to the next, from one sensation to the next, and from one experience to the next. Actually, to deviate slightly, this idea of moving from one experience to the next, it speaks to what we today seem to think a good or fulfilling life amounts to, doesn't it? You know, there's a, there's a bucket list, or there are activities that we have to check off the list. Life is a list of things that we need to do. We need to maximize all of life's possibilities. But what are we really doing here? Well, what we seem to be doing is linking fulfillment with plenitude. That's to say, a fulfilled or happy life is about quantity. It's about how much we do or how many experiences we have. But there's something misguided about this. There's something misguided about the idea that the point of life is to live as long as possible so as to try to exhaust all of life's experiences. What's misguided is this. That kind of life is without narration. Where is the story in that life? What is the story in a shopping list? How can a list of experiences provide direction and a meaningful totality? If we're just rushing through everything, moving quickly to the next thing, never resting with what we have, then how is it we're bringing anything to a conclusion or making sense of the whole? That just seems to be a life of incessant movement and atomized time, a life of activity without much reflection and without a real synthesis. I don't know, maybe this is why we're so afraid of death. Maybe... We're so afraid of death because we see the goodness of our lives as predicated on quantity and not on thoughtful narrative, something which makes us unable to see our lives as stories and so as having a meaningful and welcomed conclusion. Listening to The Wisdom of Podcasts. 
If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Atheism. Thank you.